Hey everybody, it's Mike from the Mike Wagner Show, powered by Sonic Web Studios and brought to you by our official sponsor, the Mike Wagner Show, international warring author, Mia Mosenzia, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. We're here with a terrific gentleman who is a five-time Emmy Award-winning sports director and 40-year veteran directing games for the New York Mets, New York Yankees, the Islanders, Atlanta Braves, the NBA on TNT, NHL on NBC, college football, basketball on CBS, and also uh, he did some Major League Baseball for ESPN, CBS College Sports, and also the Baltimore Ravens preseason football. He has a passion for classic rock and uh, did some songwriting back in the teen years. And um, it all is coming to fruition as well, too. And he's got a book out called Classic Rock Songs Revealed, Volumes 1 and 2. And I love it so much, I didn't want to put that down. So we'll be covering Volume 1, and of course, we'll get to Volume 2 as well. I mean, just a lot of stories. Covering Billy Joel, Chicago, Love and Spoonful, Jackson Brown, and more. Live, ladies and gentlemen, from Plus Studios in beautiful downtown Atlanta, Georgia. The amazing uh, five-time Emmy Award-winning sports director, 40-year veteran, and author of Classic Rock Songs Revealed, Volumes 1 and 2 with Kathleen LaCroix. He's got a college of knowledge, ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Dan Regan. Dan, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for that very, very nice introduction. I appreciate that. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on board, Dan, and you're a five-time Emmy Award-winning sports director, 40-year uh, veteran, directing games for the New York Mets, the Yankees, Islanders, Atlanta Braves, NBA and TNT, NHL on NBC, CBS Sports, college football and basketball, also MLB for ESPN, also uh, the Baltimore Ravens, and your passion for classic rock and songwriting back to the teen years, and you managed to combine everything into one amazing career. You start off with Billy Joel, Chicago, and it has just gone beyond. The story behind the song, Dan, before we get into all that, uh, tell us how you first got started. Uh, how I first got started. Um, well, at the risk of sounding like Ted Baxter from Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, <laughs> I don't know the story. <laughs> it all started. Um, I, I dreamt of being a uh, sports radio announcer. I wanted to do sports on the radio and I went to college in, in Long Island. It was called CW Post University. It's now Long Island University. Immediately got to work at the radio station. I uh, was on the air pretty quickly, became the sports director in my sophomore year. Uh, did two years of basketball and football play-by-play. -play. Um, enjoyed doing that very much. And I had some very dear friends who graduated a year ahead of me. One who went to and is still in Williston, North Dakota. Wow, amazing. Um, yeah, and another guy that went to Burlington, Iowa, and did uh, 35 years as a, uh, a disc jockey out there and was a program director. And I thought that that was the track that I was going to take. But all things kind of changed my senior year in college. Uh, I had, um, let me back up, in my junior year in college, I took an introduction to TV course, hit it off really well with the professor. Senior year comes, and I did an internship at what was then a fledgling sports cable company called Sports Channel. It was part of Cablevision. Mm -hmm. And they're, not, they're now Madison Square Garden Sports. So I, <clears throat> I was doing that internship first right around this time of the year in January. And I was also taking, I signed up for a second television course because that same professor was teaching it. And this was in um, more television production. But I was still thinking that I was going to go into radio. So I'm doing my, my internship, and one day I'm back in my dormitory, and the star football player's girlfriend, who I knew and lived upstairs from me, sees me. We said hello, asked me what I was doing. I told her I'd just come back from doing this internship. She asked me how I liked it. I told her I didn't like it. She asked why. I said, because 
I wasn't allowed to touch any of the equipment and I didn't think I was really geared toward doing that kind of work anyway. And little did I know, you know, she said, what would you like to be doing? And I said, I'd like to be, instead of being cable vision, I'd like to go across the sports channel because mm. I love sports. I know a lot about sports. And even if I'm not doing a whole lot there, at least I'm embedded with sports. And she said, I might be able to help you with that. Little did I know she was the daughter of the number two man in charge. Interesting. And so, yeah. So she made a call. She, she then called me up, you know, about an hour later. And she said, starting next week, don't go to cable vision, go across the sports channel. So I started my internship there and I was doing, you know, that gopher work really for the, the remaining months of my college career. But before I got out, um, I got a phone call one day in my dorm from a girl that I was friendly with who said that she was going to use my television sports, uh, my television production class that I was taking to do a um, produce a one hour variety show. And she said, you're going to direct it. And I said, no, I'm not. And <laughs> she said, no, you don't understand. She said that she had asked the professor if she, if she could use our class to do, the, to do her show. And he said, on one condition, you have Dan Regan be the director. So I, I had the professor's phone number. I called him up and I said, what are you doing to me? And he said, look, you're going to do this. I see something in you. Um, you're going to do this for her. And you'll be fine. And just just go ahead and do it. And so I went and I and this is my senior year in college. I'm graduating in two months. And I I directed this one hour variety show of hers. Well, lo and behold, fast forward, then I graduate. Sports Channel it hired me right out of college. Um, and they offered me a chance to instead of um, what I had been doing was I was going to Mets games and Yankee games and Islander games, and I was just being a runner and doing stuff like that. And then I started becoming a production assistant working with the graphics. They gave me a chance right out of school to do that job and get paid. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, I said, this doesn't sound too bad. These are, you know, I mean, I'm going to get paid to go watch my favorite teams um, and, and, and get paid for it and keep score of the games, which I sometimes did at home anyway. Mm -hmm. So, I, I kind of put, I thought I was putting my radio dreams and aspirations on the back burner and I signed up for that. And then I got immersed into that. And within um, four or five years, I went up through the ranks and I became a director, um, never thinking that that would happen, never dreaming that that would happen. And all that time, that college professor had seen something in me. And in 1987, 1988, it was actually, I became the director for the Mets and, um, one time during one of the games, one season, I was. This was long before the score bug, where you had the the pitch and velocity and all that. We had a radar gun behind home plate. That professor came and he worked the game for me, holding the radar gun behind home plate. So it was a really huh, interesting to have him there with me. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really how I got started. And I was in New York for twelve years, working for Sports Channel and covering the Islanders and the Mets. And at the time, they were the New Jersey Nets did some indoor soccer. And then 1993, I got an opportunity to move to Atlanta with my wife and go to work for Turner Sports. And I was there for 12 years and directed the Braves all 12 of those years, did the NBA for six years, um, did some hockey when the Thrashers came in, mm -hmm. did that for three years. And then I went to ESPN. Wow. That was so amazing. And of course, you know, along the lines, you also did some uh, preseason football for the Baltimore Ravens, which, by the way, I do do it. They did quite well until they got knocked out of the playoffs. So they're starting to come around pretty good. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it might have been the season, you know, everything with the Ravens on offense hinges with the health of Lamar Jackson. And when he went down the last four or five weeks of the season, instead of averaging like 25 or 26 points a game when with Lamar in, they then went down to, uh, they were scoring like maybe 16 points a game. So he's really, really critical to their, to their success. And it really hurt them that, that he couldn't play against the Bengals in that playoff game. Oh, that was too bad. That was too bad. I mean, I, difficulties with our mics here so we're going to um get that started here so we're going to get that plugged in here we are with um dan regan of um classic rock of well too i think technical gremlins managed to get in too i think somebody from the ravens was trying to mess with my microphone here so somebody <laughs> <on the back. laughs> Oh my goodness! You gotta enjoy all that. So, of course, you did some yep. games like the Mets, Yankees, and Islanders, and all that. What would you say were some of the most memorable games that you've done, and what stood out for you? Well, there were. I mean, it's hard to choose a memorable game. There are really more memorable moments. So there was one. Well, there was one, one memorable game. Um, it was in uh, I'm trying to remember what year it was, but Pete Rose was managing the Cincinnati Reds. And there was a play at first base that went against the Reds and he came out and he pushed the umpire and immediately got ejected. And the fans started throwing stuff on the field and the game was delayed for like half an hour while the field was being cleared off. And I mean, you, back in that day, this was long before replay review and all of that. So, you know, there were managers that would come out and argue a call at a base and those arguments were a dime a dozen, and sometimes that got escalated, and the, and the manager got thrown out. But never did you see a player or a manager, no less, physically push an umpire. So um, that just goes to the unexpectability. Um, no matter how many times you watch a sporting event, and that's part of the fun of doing the job that I did, you're, you never know when you're going to see something that you've never seen before. And Pete Rose pushed that umpire Dave Pallone, and it was and he got suspended, of course. Mm -hmm. But that that was pretty memorable. There were a lot of memorable hockey games that I did. I was with the Islanders, not on a directing role yet, but I was with the Islanders when they were winning their four Stanley Cups, and so that was a lot of fun. Um, early in my career, I also worked with you know the Yankees games, and we had Mickey Mantle on our broadcast, and my job was to really work with Mickey and assist him in the broadcast booth. And so um, that was that was a lot of fun. And I tell people that I'm probably the only person that can say they won a ten dollar bet from Mickey Mantle. <laughs> and um, when when he paid me, there was a little voice inside of me that said, make him sign it. And he handed me the ten dollar bill. And I said, you know what, Mick, I'm going to take this bill out of circulation. Would you sign it? And he said, you want me to sign it? I said, yes, please. So he takes the dollar, he takes the $10 bill and he starts to scribble and he starts giggling. And he wrote to Danny, you lucky asshole, Mickey. <laughs> and that is hanging in my man cave downstairs in a frame. And, my, and may I ask you, what was that bet? What was that bet? Okay. So the bet was um, sports channel uh, was doing a, choose the all-time Yankee team position by position. So uh, one night they did choose the uh, all-time first baseman, and they had they throw three names up. 
So first base, Lou Gehrig, Don Mattingly, and whomever. And the fans would vote. And so, and Mickey didn't do every game. He would only do 50 or 60 games um, during the season. Well, as luck would have it, the night that they were voting on the all-time greatest center fielder, Mickey was in the booth. And they put Mickey up, you know, it was who vote for either Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, and I don't remember. It didn't matter who the third guy was. Well, Mickey said on the air, I know who should win that. And he meant DiMaggio. And we got to a commercial and I looked at him and I said, I said, Mick, you don't think you're going to win this? He says, no, no way, Dan. And I go, Mick, you will win this going away. And he said, no. And I just went, I smell a bet. And he went, you want to bet? And I said, yeah. He goes, what do you want to bet? I said, I'll bet you 10 bucks. He goes, okay, you're on. Well, when the results were the results were announced in the eighth inning, he had left after the seventh, after the sixth inning, he'd leave in the seventh inning. So the next time he came in, and of course he won. It was a big, you know, it's mostly a popularity contest. And he was one of, arguably one of the most popular Yankees of all time. Mm-hmm. And he won going away. So the next time he came into the booth, I said, hey, Mick, we've got some settling up to do. And he said, oh, yeah, who who won? And I said, take a guess. He goes, I did. He was genuinely surprised because he really didn't think that, you know, he thought that DiMaggio was a better player. Mm-hmm. It shows it shows his, he was one of the most humble superstars that have ever been around. That is so interesting. I wish I would have met the Mick. I got to say that. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. And then you also, um, you know, have been doing it for quite some time. And uh, you also wrote some book as well, too. We'll talk about the transition. We'll talk about the book, uh, Classic Rock Songs, Volumes 1 and 2. But first, listen to the Mike Wagner Show at themikewagnershow.com, powered by SoundCloud Studios. Visit online at soundcrabstudios.com for all your needs. Look at a professional website without breaking your budget. Sonic Web Studios is the answer. Sonic Web Studios offers fast, affordable custom web designs that blow the competition away. Call today, 1-800-303-3960. That's 1-800-303-3960. Or email to support at soundcrabstudios.com. Mention Mike Wagner show you 20% off your first project. Sonic Web Studios, take your image to the next level. Also, time to give an official shout-out to our official sponsor of the Mike Wagner Show, international warring author Mia Molson-Zia. If you love fast-paced mysteries, you'll love Missing by Mia Molson-Zia, available on Amazon and paperback in your book. Missing is fast-paced and intriguing with an unforgettable twist. It takes place in four countries, two strangers, one target, where truth is illusion and those you love will be the first to go missing. It's available on Amazon and paperback in ebook. Missing by Mia Molson-Zia has got great reviews. In Eve 11, endorsed by Howard celebrities, including Joanna Cassie, Forge Riley, and Manils. So grab your copy today for Goes Missing by Mia Molson-Zia, available on Amazon. Also, check out the Mike Widener Show at themikewidenershow.com on over 40 podcast platforms. Heard in other countries, including Facebook, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Also, Anchor FM, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Audible, Apple Music. Also, heard on HamiltonRadio.net. Every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central, also on BitChute and Rumble as well. Take us with you on any mobile device. Subscribe to The Mike Widener Show on the YouTube channel. Follow The Mike Widener Show on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok today. And for great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com. Check out The Mike Widener Show podcast. T-shirts, pop sockets, throw pillows, hope, tote bags, hoodies. Makes great gift ideas 24-7. Go to Amazon.com. Check out The Mike Widener Show podcast. And for more great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com slash Mia for great books like Missing, Once, and Wrinkles, also T-shirts, pop sockets, hoodies, phone cases, and more, Amazon.com slash Mia Molson Zia. Check it out today. Also, both the Mike Widener Show on Anchor FM, PayPal, and themikewidenershow.com. Make sure you do so today. We're here with the amazing, multi-talented, five-time Emmy Award-winning sports director and 40-year veteran, 
Dan Regan here on the Mike Wagner Show, also an author of Classic Rock Songs Revealed Volumes 1 and 2. And um, and and first of all, you, you know, how'd you make the transition going from sports over to um becoming an author as well? Too? It's like you did all these games like for the Mets, Yankees, Islanders, and all of a sudden you decided to go ahead and um, start writing some books. You write about Billy Joel, Chicago, Love and Spoonful, Jackson Brown, and more. Well, Mike, I'll tell you, um, it's not the transition um, was a, a long process. I started um, writing the books. I started doing the interviews back in 1994. Wow. I did um, probably 30 or so interviews between 1994 and 1998. And then I put it down. Um, I was getting, you know, there was a, a bunch of circumstances. My children were very young at the time. My wife had some health issues. And um, I was traveling a lot. I was working with the Braves. I was working for Turner Sports. I was doing about 100 baseball games, and then I was doing the NBA. So I was really busy. And plus, there was a lot of um, – I would make phone calls to these artist agents, and they would say, he's not available right now. Call us back in six months. And I'd call back in six months, and they'd say, he's going out on tour to promote the record. Call us back in six months. So, so they're getting kind of a runaround. I know how that goes. Yeah, right. So, and with all the other things, with, with, with else, what, what else what was going on with my family and my career, I just put it down. Well, a long stretch of time went by. I mean, this was 98, and now we get into the 2000s and 2010s, and I didn't write anything, I didn't do an interview, but it haunted me. I couldn't get this out of my head because I still listened to all this music, and I would hear a song like Taking Care of Business, and I interviewed Randy Bachman and he told me about that song and I would hear and then the next song would come on and it'd be, you know, um, listen to the music by the Doobie Brothers and I, Tom Johnson. Told me that. And I had all this information in my head and it was like and I, and I had told enough people that I had started this and a lot of them would say, how's your book coming? How's your book coming? You got to finish it. You got to finish it. And I got a lot of pushing and a lot of, a lot of encouragement. So around 2012, my sister-in-law. Um, self wrote, self published the book. Wrote and self published the book. Um, she has a special needs daughter, and she wrote a book about that. And when she wrote that, I was really inspired, and I was very proud of her for doing that. And that got that gave me the needed kick in the pants that I, you know, to get back on the horse. And I started working on it again. And then we got, you know, I stopped again. And then finally, um, 2020. We all know what happened in 2020. In March, COVID happened. And I'm probably the only person on planet Earth, besides winning a bet from Mickey Mantle, I can mm -hmm. tell you that um, COVID was a blessing in disguise because it obviously shut the world down. But then it 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 it, it forced me to say I've got I've got no work. The sports world shut down. Everything shut down. I've got to finish this book. I've got to finish this book. And um, a long and dear friend of mine, a guy that I've known for almost fifty years. He, he reached out to me, asked me if I was still looking for somebody to kind of help me edit the book and, and help me with the writing process. And I told him I did. His daughter was a freelance writer. He set me up with her. That's Catherine LaCroix. Um, I, I called her up and I told her, I said, look, I've been going at this for, for the better part of 27 years now. If you tell me you're going to help me, your yes has to be yes. You can't come back to me you know, six weeks, two months from now and say, I've got a lot of other work. I can't, I, you know, I can't do this now. You've got to, we've got to do this. And she was on, you know, she was full, full speed ahead. And she was great. She was just terrific. She was exactly what I needed. And I sat down, did a whole lot of more interviews and one volume turned into two. And, and we, we launched the book 
last March, March the 18th, my wife's birthday. And here we are mm. 10 months later. And the, I've been very, very pleased. We had a really nice Christmas season. A lot of a lot of books were purchased for Christmas gifts. And uh, it's been it's been really great. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the thing a whole started with Billy Joel as well, too. I can also, um, you know, look through the uh, book as well, too, like, say, with, um, you know, Prelude, Angry Young Man, also New York State of Mind, and also um, also like the entertainer as well, too. And um, some of the things like with moving out and uh, maybe just uh, pick a couple about, you know, the stories behind those songs. You know, I particularly liked about um, moving out and also the entertainer as well. You know, really go in depth about the whole uh, story behind the song, not just a story, but actually like also investigative, almost like a journalistic type. You know, Billy Joel was very interesting. He was, I had seen a special on him um, in the 90s, because I interviewed him in the 90s. There was a special on the Disney Channel about dreams. And they interviewed Billy Joel. And he said on that on that special that a lot, if not most of his music came to him in dreams. And I was blown away by that. And so then when I got the opportunity to interview him, I really wanted to get to the bottom of that. And I really want I wanted to ask one of the first things I asked them, and it's in the book, is how long have you been having these symphonic dreams? At what age did they, did they start? And he couldn't put an he couldn't put an age on it. He said, I don't know, probably childhood. Um, but I really didn't know, realize at the time what it was that I was dreaming. So um that, you know, and he was Billy Joel is he could if he decided to stop you know, touring and playing music and just decided to go out and do stand-up comedy, he could because he's really funny and he's really engaged and he's just a regular guy from Hicksville, Long Island, which is about 10 minutes from where I went to college. And um, he was, I mean, they were all, all the artists that I spoke to were really interesting, but he was, you know, right there at the very top of the list. Mm-hmm. And and certainly as well, too, you also got into uh, Chicago as well, too, and how they got started. And I think there was also Call of My World, which they tried to uh, make like an opus of it. And I think there was also um, a section in there about the d- details of um, Terry Kath and, you know, all the um, demise of Chicago as well, too, like in some of the songs, maybe just a bit about that. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um uh, you're, you had mentioned Terry Kath. Today, the day that we're recording this is the anniversary of his death. Um, it happened on January the 23rd, um, 1978. And I just wrote about wow. it on my Facebook page, my, my classic rock songs revealed.com page. I wrote about um, that particular event, how it impacted my life. I was, um, in order to get on the air and handle the equipment at my college radio station, I had to go into New York City and take a test for the FCC. And I went the next day on the 24th. This is before the um, 24-hour news cycle, long before cable and all of that. And I, I, I took the test, passed it. I was really happy. I grabbed the New York Daily News and the New York Post because the big sports junkie, obviously. I hopped into the subway and I got a rare seat and I'm sitting there. And normally those newspapers are even the back to the front from the sports page back. But for some reason, those papers were sitting on my lap with the front page and on the very front page there was a little box in the bottom corner that said rock star shoots self and i was like oh i wonder who this could be and i thought even if it's a group that i'm not that familiar with i might know the name and i turned to the page and there it was chicago guitarist terry kath accidentally shoots himself i was my knees buckled i was i was you know blown away i was so devastated um 
And so, um, yeah, so I, I did write a little bit about that in the book. I spoke to Robert Lamb about that and to, and to uh, Jimmy Panko. They talked about it. You mentioned Color My World. Color My World was all part of Jimmy Panko's magnum opus, um, Ballet for a Girl in Buchanan with Make Me Smile and Color My World. And he went into great detail about that. And, and speaking of Color My World, um, I had heard a story that I asked him about and he confirmed it. Frank Sinatra wanted um, Jimmy Panko to write another verse to Color My World. And his publishing company called Chicago and said, hey, if the kid, because he was only like 23 or 24 at the time, he said, hey, if the kid can write another verse, Old Blue Eyes will record it. And Panko chewed on that for a bit, but he decided that he just couldn't do it. He said he equated it to sewing another arm onto his kid. And I told him I was glad he didn't because that piece of music, that 12-minute piece of music, um, it's just, you know, just wonderful the way it is. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, you know, turning down the channel of the board and of course you're adding a piece and you, and you think of like, could have been done just for Frank's benefit or something, or do you think it could have been better? Or, or you think Frank could have like maybe botched it up or something? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really tough one. Um, he, I, I think that um, Anybody, I, I, I've written about this also on my Facebook page, and a lot of people have responded to, to that saying, I would have done it, no problem, Frank Sinatra and all of that. And I, I thought it really took a lot of courage and gumption on, on Jimmy Panko's part to, to turn down the chairman of the board and say, nope, I wrote this song, it is the way it is. Um, and at that time, and this, this song came out in the early 1970s, people were using that for their wedding songs and, and all of that and it, it's it, I, I can I, in one level I can relate to it because I you know my books I I, I call these books these are my twins these are like my you <laughs> I know hey, hey, hey I've got I, I've got twins too right in front here it's yeah. like quads or something <laughs> so and, and it's like if those books are are I'm I'm proud of them and I'm I'm you know I feel very accomplished and and fulfilled. But if if someone were to say to me, you know, go back into volume two and you can add this, and I would say no, I I can't do that. You know, I may think about a volume three, but but no, I wouldn't. Those they are what they are, and you know, to to ask somebody to then go in and write another verse just because a very famous singer wants to you know, record it, you know, it would have probably taken that song to a whole nother level, but, you know, all credit in the world to Jimmy Panko for saying no. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, I don't blame him as well too. I bet you Frank is probably like downing, like, you know, you know, 50 million bottles of scotch all because he got turned down and you hardly ever turned down the chairman of the board. I mean, <laughs> I guess it all depends right. too, but of course, you know, another, um, you know, chapter in there, which I found uh, amazing about the guests who, they started in 1962, believe it or not, and they actually went up to the Who and said, hey, you're using our name. I mean, who had the guts to go up to say to Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, John and Twistle, and Keith Moon says, you can't do that. Who really had the guts to do that? Right. Yeah. They, they, um, Randy Bachman went into a whole explanation about that, and they had a lot of fun with it. And it wound up, as the story goes in the book, um, they wound up in the same hotel together. And um, Bachman found out what room uh, Pete Townsend was staying in, and he knocked on the door and he said, "Hey, you're using our name." And and they had a little back and forth about it, so they changed their name to the Guess Who. They became the Guess Who. So, and I think it turned out well for both both groups. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I remember too, there's a story about where they had all kinds of names and everything. They couldn't come up with a name and they'd be like, you know, hey, you're using our name, using our name. And then finally a record promoter just put a question mark and said, guess who? And I think that's what really started. I think that was very clever marketing and who, whoever did that should get a lot of credit for it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. and they're, they're one of the, one of Canada's real success stories too. I mean, there are a lot of great Canadian artists and, but they were one of the very first, you know, big Canadian groups. They were inspired by Neil Young, of course. Um, but yeah, the guess who is, um, that that was a that was a very fun chapter. Randy Bachman and Burton Cummings both were terrific guys, and they were very forthcoming with the stories behind their songs. And of course, Randy Bachman then went became you know Bachman Turner Overdrive, and I wrote about some of those songs as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, another fellow Canadian too. You also mentioned the book is uh, Gordon Lightfoot as well too. Eighty three and still going, believe it or not. So I'm just going through his book as we speak, and like I said, this is just really really hard to put down i gotta say that so we'll, we'll also cover uh some others as well too and um and of course you know story about gordon lightfoot if you could read my mind sundown and of course you know my favorite the ballad of the edmund fitzgerald which was about um you know that the sinking of the uh edmund fitzgerald up in lake superior and i, I remember that song stood out because my folks went up there for a little bit of a honeymoon in the upper Michigan around the time. And then we asked when they'll get back and all of a sudden news broke that in that neck of the woods that the Edmonds sank and, and took out um, what was about um, what 50, 60 people on board and had a big funeral for it. And I thought, Holy cow, that hit everybody up in the area. Yeah, it did. And, you know, Gordon Lightfoot, that was his only number one hit. And um, he, that, that song is very similar in the way that it was written to a day in the life by the Beatles in that, you know, John Lennon was took right out of the newspaper, the events that he was reading from the, I guess the London daily mail or whatever, but you know, the same thing happened with Gordon Lightfoot. He was reading about this tragedy and he just pretty much wrote the song based on everything he read in the article about the sinking of the Evan Fitzgerald. And he said he wanted to be, very um, cognizant of of the family's feelings and he wanted to make sure that he was true to the account and he didn't want to sensationalize it and i saw a video of him in his home and he's got the he's got the magazine article framed and he and he pointed to it and he said you know this is the magazine this is the article that i read and i just pretty much lifted it right from there and they recorded it in one take the, the take you hear that became the, the hit on the on the radio, they did that in one take. Wow. That is something. How often do people do that? It makes you wonder about that. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of songs that, you know, people write where it just comes to them and um, they, they don't have to go back and fix a part or something. But when you go into the studio, a lot of times, you know, it can take, depending on who it is, like Steely Dan, who I wrote about, I spoke with their longtime producer, Gary Katz. You know, they, it would take upwards to a year to t- to make an album. And when I say a year, they would work every single day. So, um, wow. you know, and, and that cost that time is money, as the expression goes. Time is money. And but Gordon Lightfoot went in and they recorded the record of the Edmund Fitzgerald and one take. That is amazing. Great way to save money. And of course, you know, another group that just takes up, you know, 
a whole a whole year in the studio is Boston as well too. Like a Don't Look Back, Amanda, and everything else, and um, you know a, a story a bit behind it too. Tom Scholz, I mean, he's just so creative. Tom Scholz was really an interesting person to speak to. In fact, you know, um, with no disrespect to people in rock and roll, it's this, and you would know this too, Mike, that when you shake the rock and roll star tree, you're not going to find very many MIT graduates. Tom Scholz is an MIT graduate, and he was working uh, in his basement, in his garage, in his basement, making all these demos and working at Polaroid. And um, as, as he shared this story, his boss had to lay off some people. And he came to him and he said, look, I've got to lay some people off and I don't want to let you go. But if you're going to go and do this music thing, um, I'd rather let you go and pursue your music than let somebody, you know, than, and then somebody else. And Tom Schultz looked at him and said, are you kidding? The chances of me making any kind of money off of the music I'm doing is like one in a million. And the boss was like, oh, okay, fine. Good. You know, you know, we'll, I'll keep you on because I didn't want to lose you. A year later, Boston's first album comes and, you know, and it just blows up. <laughs> and Scholz goes back in and he's emptying out his, his desk and he's at the elevator with a box that we can be an all picture of the scene. And the boss comes out of his debt, out of his office across from the elevator. He looks at me and goes, one in a million, huh? He goes, that had to be somebody. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that is something. Well, speaking of one in a million, Christy McVie also did a song on that too, one in a million, along with uh, Over My Head and her ventures on Fleetwood Mac. You know, the story behind that, I mean, one in a million. So it's like you think Tom Scholz is one in a million, Christy McVie, one in a million. How do you like that? Yeah, Christy McVie, I I mourn her passing. She was a, a such a special lady. She was a real treat to speak to as well. Um, and she just passed away a couple of months ago. Um, and when she passed, I put up on my, on my web, on my Facebook page, um, the story that she's told me about her song songbird, which was, you know, from the rumors album. Mm -hmm. And it's, I would invite everybody that you know, hopefully will go buy the book, classic rock songs revealed.com. They can get it at my website. Um, and she's in volume one and she went into you know, detail about that song. And I told her prior to interviewing her that day that I had gone back and listened to it. And all that time that I had listened to the, the numbers of times I had listened to that song, I always thought it was a song about a loved one, about, you know, a lover or something like that. I said, but there was something that just struck me when I listened to it that day that it could be about, you know, a, a parent to a child or some, you know, a, a, your, your, your song to somebody who's ill. And she said, that's right. You're exactly right. It could be for anybody. And um, she was, she, you know, she actually wrote more songs than anybody else in Fleetwood Mac. She wrote more songs than Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. And um, she, that, that's, that's a huge loss, losing Christine McVeigh. And such mm -hmm. a special lady. Mm -hmm. And certainly one in a million as well, too. And of course, you know, also losing one of the, um, you know, favorites as well, too. Jim Croce, one of my favorites, you know, you know, being me being very young, and of course, experiencing like, you know, a, a huge loss. I was looking forward to, um, you know, buy one of his albums. Maybe I can bug my parents to go see Jim Croce come to Chicago and all that. And I remember cleaning out one of my, um, the rooms and everything, you know, just again, allowance and everything, save up, buy a Jim Croce album. Then I'll sit her on the radio that Jim Croce, 
you know, was killed in a plane crash. I mean, that was a legacy right there with time in a bottle. And of course, you know, story behind bad, bad Leroy Brown and more as well too. I mean, he was just so prolific and uh, gone too soon. Gone way too soon. And you know something, Mike, I'll tell you, when I started out this process back in 1994, I made a list of people that I wanted to talk to and I included producers. I had seen a special done on the making of Sergeant Pepper. And of course, the great George Martin was the fifth Beatle. And George Martin had so much, just a wealth of knowledge and contributed so much to the making of all their records, but especially the making of Sergeant Pepper. And so that really had an impact on me. And so I decided that when I was gonna go about this book, I was gonna try and speak to as many producers as I could. And I was able, one of the, two of the very first people that I interviewed besides Kenny Loggins was Jim Croce's producers, Tommy West and Terry Cashman. And those two guys, I mean, Tommy West was one of his best friends and Terry Cashman and West were very close. And they worked with him on all of his records. And they they spoke a lot about Jim, the person and Jim, the musician. And it was, you know, all the music that he did that became so successful and that we still enjoy to this day. He did that in a span of 18 months. And I think, you know, I think that he's one of the most underrated singer songwriters of that era because he really he was very, very he was very talented. Mm-hmm. And certainly talented D as well, too. And uh, we'll cover volume two of uh, classic rock songs um, revealed as well, too, with uh, Dan Regan. First, listen to the Mike Widener Show at the themikewidenershow.com, powered by Sonic Web Studios and brought to you by official sponsor of the Mike Widener Show, international warring author Mia Molson's The Missing, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. We'll be back with the multi-talented five-time Emmy Award-winning uh, sports director and author of classic rock songs revealed, Dan Regan, after this timeout. We're back with the author of Classic Rock Songs Reveal Volumes 1 and 2 and five-time Emmy Warring Sports Director Dan Regan here on the Mike Wagner Show. I mean, you covered a lot of uh, ground when it came to sports and everything else, a lot of great stories, and also some great stories with volume as well, too. And briefly, a volume two as well, too, without giving away too much of the book, we also go into the Eagles, like with, um, you know, Don Henley, Glenn Fry, and all those guys. You got Steely Dan, the Doobie Brothers, and more as well, too. And, of course, you know, Horner was a great story as well, too. It was just like Boston. It's like, you know, had... One of the guys, Mick Jones, he was on, he's at, especially at Wit Sand, you know, this is the last group I'll be doing. It's either a make it or break. And that was just a great story, Mick Jones and Foreigner. Well, thank you. Yeah, he was, he was, he had come from a group called Spooky Tooth and he moved to New York. And he, as you said, he was like, this is, I, I, this is my last shot. And I wanted, he wanted to make a, a, a go of it. And he wanted a certain sound. He wanted a certain voice. Just like Tom Scholz was looking for a certain sound with Brad Delp, uh, Mick Jones was looking for a certain singer, a certain lead singer that could sing these songs. And he he was turned on to Lou Graham and he and Lou Graham hooked up and they, you know, they, they their first four albums were like, uh, I think I wrote in the book, number four, number three, number two and number two, their first four albums. They, they were huge for a time there. Mm. And, and certainly they also, um, you know, just, uh, you know, shot to the top as well, too, like with some of the songs like I Want to Know What Love Is, Jukebox Hero, and everything else. And, of course, you know, what, what would you say is the most inter- interesting story behind the song among foreigners? What was the most interesting to you? Um, well, there were a few. Uh, Double Vision. Uh, Lou Graham was telling me the story that he was in the recording booth, and they were tr- they were doing Double Vision. 
but he didn't have the hook. He didn't have the title. He didn't know what to call the song. They were, and they were laying down the track and there was a break in the um, recording and in his little booth, there was a small little TV monitor and the NHL playoffs were going on and the Rangers were playing and <laughs> he was really into it. And so there was a break in the recording. So he turned the dial up in the booth to hear what was going on because the Rangers goaltender, John Davidson, had gotten hit and was down Ooh. and they took him off the ice. And then the report came back that he that John Davidson was experiencing double vision. Wow. And when Lou Graham heard that, he went, oh, that's it. And he took it from there. A hockey goaltender getting hit in the head by a puck, experiencing double vision. That gave him the inspiration to call that song Double Vision. That is and then so I want to know the song I want to know what love is. They brought in a choir to sing behind them. And uh, Mick Jones talked about what a moving time that was. The choir all got together and they said, Do you mind if we we say a prayer before we start? And he said, oh, by all means, go ahead. And he said it was just an, an unbelievable. Um, experience and Lou Graham and I told Lou Graham this his voice his vocal on that song I want to know what love is was just spectacular mm -hmm. and, and certainly amazing indeed as well too and of course you know lastly we'll talk about the Eagles as well too and of course you know Don Henley Glenn Fry, and all those guys getting as well too Randy Meisner and um, you know the story behind Hotel California many stories behind it and of course what was your what was your take on Hotel California when they wrote as well my take, yes, in the book. you know. Uh, so my take when when that song came out, and I've told a lot of people this, is that part of the reason why I wanted I wanted to write this book was because I was always fascinated what the songs were about, obviously, and what really gave me the inspiration was when John Lennon, who was my favorite musician, when he was murdered, um, a couple of months after that, Playboy re released a series of interviews that they had done with Lennon. And the second one, John Lennon described what all the Beatles songs were about, every single one. And I was just fascinated by that. And I saved it and kept it. And at the time when I was reading, I was thinking to myself, why can't everybody do this? Why can't everybody tell us what these songs are about? So that's 1981 when that came out. And so now you fast forward and I'm doing the book. And well, well, Hotel California came out and everybody was thinking it was about drugs and, uh, this is, you know, fast living and. California and all that. And critics, rock critics and Rolling Stone people would write, this is what the song's about. And I kept reading these articles and I'm thinking, I don't see Glenn Fry's quote there. I don't see Don Henley's quote there. And so um, I asked both of those guys, you know, tell me, you know, what was it about? And they both credited, we just mentioned them a moment ago, they both credited to some extent Steely Dan and how brave Walter Becker and Donald Fagan were at their writing table the, the things that they would write about, how they would write about cryptic things. And, you know, they said, yeah, were, were we observe, we were observers of the situation? Were we participants? Yeah, probably of the over-the-top lifestyle then. But that's really kind of what, what we were doing. We were inspired by the fact that Steely Dan, you know, would, would be a little edgy in their lyrics. And we decided that we were going to try and do something like that. And I asked Don Henley, the, the line in stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. Was that a tip of the cap to Steely Dan? And because Steely Dan had written a song on their, um, uh, uh, the, the album that uh, Kid Charlemagne is on. I, oh, oh, my oh, favorite. Um, I love that. The Royal song. Scam. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Royal Scam. So on the Royal Scam, there's a song, um, Everything You Did. And there's a line in that, turn up the eagles, the neighbors are listening. <laughs> and so I asked Henley, was that line stab it with their stealing knives like a payback? And he said, well, not necessarily a payback, but yeah, it was kind of a tip of the cap to them. And then he talked about what that line in particular meant. And I won't go into it here. I'll let the people read about it in volume two. Mm-hmm. We certainly do so as well, too. And of course, you know, one thing that really stood out was Mr. Roboto by Styx. And of course, you know, about Doma Megato and, uh, you know, tied in Mr. Roboto and about, um, you know, the future and everything else. And just a bit more about it. It's like, you know, I often think of the Volkswagen commercials. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That and now you get into it. He was Dennis DeYoung. He was one of the very last people that I spoke with um, during the pandemic, and he was he was really fun. Um, most of my interviews, I would tell the people that I was you know I wanted like forty five minutes, forty five minutes to an hour, and I would play it you know see how it was going, and I would tell them I don't want to take up too much more of your time. And if they said no, well let's keep going, we keep going. Dennis the Young and I spoke for well over two hours, and he is just, he's the t- kind of guy you'd want to sit down and have a beer with. And he went into great detail about that song, Mr. Roboto, and about all of the stick songs that he wrote. Most of them are about his wife of 53 years. He and, wow. um, and his wife just had um, their 53rd anniversary for and on January the 18th. So, um, yeah, it was, um, he, he was very um, gregarious very funny, very honest, very forthright. He um, took a shot or two at some rock critics and stuff. And so <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a fun chapter. Mm. It, it sounds like a fun chapter too. And going back to the Beatles, you know, this just came up in my mind as well too, you know, with John Lennon going over detail, a list of all the songs the Beatles wrote. What was the most interesting story that you, uh, that you read about John Lennon when it came to the Beatles? What was the most interesting song that was described in detail, according to John Lennon. I would have to say Strawberry Feels Forever. And he said that the line in that song, no one I think is in my tree, I mean, it must be high or low. What that line meant, according to Lennon, was that even as a young kid, he was seeing things and as an adult would. He was grown up as like eight, nine, 10 year old. And he was able to just see things differently than most kids could do. So that that no one I think is in my tree, that was his way of saying, you know, I'm seeing things going on here that I don't really quite understand because he was he, he was mature beyond his years. And so um, that was that was really fascinating. And of course, we mentioned a day in the life, how he could just read an article out of a newspaper and just pick off all the events from that from that day's news and then write a song about it um he was he and paul mccartney i mean they, you know they were the best they were just the best mm-hmm. and of course lastly talk about the day in the life of grand funk railroad and their sudden rise to the top with mark farner who i had on my show and i mean just a fascinating story in day of life of grand funk railroad just um starting off uh, in flint michigan and just working away it's like what was it 18 months it's like they go from playing to maybe less than 100 people, 500, and all of a sudden, what, within 18 months or less, they're playing for, like, what, 50, 100,000 people or something? Yeah, there was there was a, 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 a big rock festival here in Atlanta, Georgia, in fact, and 100,000 people were, were, were there, that, and they played in front of them. That's right. 
Uh, Mark Farner was, he was, he was very, really, really good guy. Um, you know, and of course his magnum opus is, you know, um, I'm your captain getting closer to getting closer to home. And he one went into favorites. that. In fact, he, yeah, my, one of my favorites too. Um, and he, he, he kind of dreamt that song. As a matter of fact, he talked about how before you went to bed that night, he had, he said a prayer and he asked, you know, God to give him a something special, give him a, a special song. He woke up in the middle of the night and he just wrote down some lyrics and he didn't know what these lyrics were or what it was attached to. And then later on that morning, he was outside having some coffee and then something came into it. It's a, this melody. And he went and grabbed the guitar and started playing. And he, and he hit that first chord, that very recognizable first chord to I'm your captain. And then he was like, I think this is what those lyrics are supposed to be for. And I mean, and that song has taken on a whole nother life of its own. And it has such special meaning to veterans, especially Vietnam veterans, but all veterans. And that is just, you know, such a wonderful piece of music. Mm, and certainly is as well, too. We know some people who did similar too. We also, um, you know, you know, also you have in the chapters as well, too, talking about the Doors, Orleans, the Moody Blues, Super Tramp, and more. But of course, you know, where can we find your book and uh, how can we, um, you know, get a hold of your book and your website at, Dan? So my books are available on my website, classicrocksongsrevealed.com. And you can get them there. They're $20 a piece and uh, shipping is, you know, four or $5. I'm happy to sign them if people want me to sign them. I, I love signing books and sending them out to people. They're also available on Amazon. If people want to read it by Kindle, they can get them on Amazon. I prefer people get them from my website, of course, but it's classicrocksongsrevealed.com. We'll certainly check that out. Once again, we're author Dan Reeve of Classic. Regan of Classic Rock Songs Reveal Volumes 1 and 2, five-time Emmy Award-winning sports director and 40-year veteran here on the Mike Wagner Show. Dan, Dan, just a few more things. We'd love to have you back more about Volume 2. If you want to do a so-called Volume 3, that's fine. Any updates as well, too? And um, what else can we expect from you in 2023 and beyond, Dan? Uh, that's a good question, Mike. I don't know. I've, I've, I'm i thinking, you know, I, I really did enjoy after it was all said and done, um, Billy Joel said, had a great quote, and I'm going to steal it from him. I don't like writing, but I love having written. Um, I grew to like the writing. And then once I got Catherine, um, that made it so much better. Um, I would like to write something else. I don't know what that is. I don't, maybe about music. Um, some people have asked me about a volume three, but, you know, with the amount of people that I've asked along the way, um, to do to be in these first two books that said no that a lot of people would have to change their minds and sadly to be honest with you we're losing people we're losing people of the classic rock era oh um, you know so it, it's just it's really sad we just lost David Crosby mm -hmm. um, so I don't know maybe something along me I really think that maybe I would like to do something about you know, maybe a biography of a, of a rock star I don't know um, a lot of people thought when they heard I was writing a book that I was writing about sports and about my stories you know, in my, my career, but you know, most of the stories that I have, and I've got a lot of them um, from my sports television career are stories that maybe not necessarily show some people, some famous people in a very good light. And I don't really want to write that book. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather stick to probably music. Mm. Or, or a really good sports figure that also really good drummer, Mike Piazza. It's like, you know, you can tie him in too. It's like, <laughs> I saw him play drums. I'm like, Holy cow, this guy's going to be up there too. Mike Piazza's a drummer. <laughs> yeah, 
you know who's a great drummer is Ron Guidry, the old Yankee pitcher. He is a really good drummer. Oh, my gosh. You know what? I think that's a great idea for you. You know, having uh, pitchers <laughs> play drums or whatever it is, I think that'd be like a volume three right there. I just hopefully lit something in you, Dan. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it under advisement, Mike. I think I, I appreciate the idea. We'll certainly uh, run with it as well, too, if God willing. And uh, also a couple of things. Who do you consider biggest influence in your career, Dan? Biggest, my biggest influence in my career? Yes. Um, well, I have to go back to that college professor that I spoke about, Christopher Dodrell. Um, you know, like when I was a senior, he he told that girl that I had to direct that show. And I that was the furthest thing from my mind. I wanted to be the next Marv Albert. I wanted, you know, Marv Albert was a great radio. And I grew up in New York listening to Marv and Bob Murphy do the Mets. And, stuff. and I, that's what I wanted to do. I never thought about being in TV, but um, he would be there. The, the radio station manager at my college radio station, Bill Moser, was a really big influence on my career. And then the two my two bosses my first boss at sports channel jerry Pissarro, he's the one that gave me my first shot to direct and he you know i owe him a, a whole lot jerry Pissarro, i owe uh, you know a lot of my career too and then my boss at um, espn dan steer those those people are the ones that really pushed me and believed in me and gave me opportunities Mm -hmm. And certainly did as well, too. Made the most of it, Dan. And what's the best advice you can give to anybody at this point? Um, well, you know, uh, the best advice I would give people is the advice that the great Jim Valvano gave. And that, you know, very memorable speech that has now become the mantra for the V Foundation. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Because these books are a testament to perseverance. And it, it, whether it's writing a book or whether whatever it is, if you have a dream, don't stop chasing it. Don't ever doubt yourself. Don't ever, you know, not believe in, in your ability to get something done. Because I'm living proof that after 28 years, I can get something done. And so work hard. There's no there's no substitute for, for hard work. Uh, but never disbelieve in yourself. Always have the confidence that you can do something. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, Dan, you've become you become my biggest fan with this book here. I got to say that. So that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. It's been a great. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been a lot of fun. And I hope that I can come back someday and do it again. We certainly will do so. We're here with uh, author Dan Regan of Classic Rock Songs, Revealed 1 and 2 here on the Mike Wagner Show. Dan, a very big thank you for your time. You've been absolutely amazing. Absolutely learned a lot from you. you got to do this again and looking forward to having you again soon. Just keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Once again, what's your website? How do people contact you? Where can people purchase or check out your books? Thank you. Uh, it's ClassicRockSongsRevealed.com. This is what... It looks like classicrocksongsrevealed.com. If you're a Kindle reader, you can get them on Amazon, but the better way is through the website, classicrocksongsrevealed.com. You can also follow me on Facebook at classicrocksongsrevealed.com. We will certainly do so. Once again, Dan, a very big thank you for your time. You've been absolutely amazing. Looking forward to having you again soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Live, I have you back and wish you all the best. And Dan, you definitely, definitely have a great future ahead of you. Uh, thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate it. All the best to you.